Here you go. Here you go. Some more bread. Oh, yo, oh, more bread. Here you go. You didn't get the bread. Oh, you didn't get more bread. Okay. Here you go. Here's some bread for you. Bread what for you. Is this? It's uh, rye bread. Are oh, you like rye bread? <laughs> All right. Oh, good seeing everyone. My name is Jeremiah, uh, but my friends call me Jerry. Hi. Hey, do you know, I've been hearing stories about this man, Jesus, and I heard that he's been healing people. And you know, when you're healing people, it's a sign of something special to come. So I had to go and see this guy. And I saw all these people going to the mountaintop, so I went there also. Oh, oh. Cousin Charlie, I saw you down the mountainside also, right? Yeah, you were there. Oh, Cousin Paige, I saw you at the mountainside. Hi, see you again. Oh, oh, and on that Zoom hill, I remember Cousin Isaac, yeah, I saw you there also. Good seeing you again. Uh, so I went there, and I went really early to get in line. But you know what? There's like so many people, like thousands and thousands of people. I, Charlie, I don't know if you heard anything, but I couldn't hear anything. So I was just sitting there, and I went early. I was so hungry. I didn't eat anything all day. It was so hot that all of a sudden, you know what I saw? I couldn't hear, but I saw Jesus. He stood up. I think, I think he was like praying. And all of a sudden, the disciples brought out bread. I got some of the bread here, right? Like I, I took some, well, maybe two that I should have taken one, right? <laughs> but he gave thanks. I ate the bread. I was so full and so happy. I was like, oh, I feel good. But then Jesus and the disciple, I think he went on a boat and went across the sea. I said, oh, my God, I need to get more of this bread, right? So I hitched a ride on the boat and went to the other side. But this time I got up really, really close, like almost right in front of Jesus. He started talking. And you know what he said? You know what he said? He looked right into my eyes. I'm not kidding. It was like he was talking to me. And this part was a little scary. He said, all you people, you came because you just wanted bread, free bread. You didn't come because of what I was saying or the things I was doing. I went, oh, how did he know? Because that bread was pretty good. I said, oh, no, what does this mean? Then Jesus said something even more strange. He said, you know, Father Moses, he didn't give you the bread from heaven. God did. God gave you the real bread of life. And I, Jesus, Jesus is the bread of life. I said, whoa, what does that mean? Hold your donkeys, what does that mean? How can Jesus be the bread of life? Cousin Penny, do you know what that means? Jesus is the bread of life? Exactly. That's what I said. I said, oh. <laughs> but I was thinking, I was so hungry before, ate the bread. I was so full. Then I realized as Jesus was talking, my heart was hungry. And Jesus was filling me up. Yeah. I said, I didn't even know my heart was hungry. But as I was hearing Jesus, my heart, my spirit was being filled up. I was thinking, wow, can it be 
that inside of us we're hungry for something and Jesus is the bread of life. He's going to fill us up and he's going to fill our spirits and he's going to send us to be with him forever. I say, how can that be? I was so confused, but it was amazing, right? So you know what I say? Whenever I'm confused, I listen to my grandma. I, Logan, you have grandma too, right? You know what my grandma says? When you're confused, or you don't understand something, you pray. So let's all pray. Open them. <laughs> shut them. Oh Lord, give us the bread of life. Open them. Shut them. To you we take to the great I am in flight. <laughs> Open them, shut them, give me hands a clap. Open them, shut them, fall in your lap. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are the great I am and you give us the bread of life. And next coming weeks, we look forward to know you better, to know you as Jesus, the great I am. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so just to, um, I forgot to mention earlier, we're going to continue to follow the same format. So following the children's message, we're going to ask all the children in the children's ministry, as well as those in TOTS, um, you will all be excused now for the next 30 minutes or so. And then after that, uh, you're all invited to return back into the worship service. Thanks. Our scripture reading for today is Psalm 126. Listen now to the word of the Lord. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, you were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing him sheaves with him. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for meeting all of our needs. Thank you for being the bread of life for us. And now in the hearing of your word, fill our hearts once again. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
So those of you who've been uh, in the uh, FGs, you've been studying Psalms uh, 120 through 134. Uh, these are collectively known as the Songs of Ascent. Uh, if you have not been in an FG and studying these Psalms, uh, I want you to know that these 15 Psalms, this collection, were likely sung by pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem during their several annual feasts for worship. Topographically speaking, Jerusalem is the high point uh, in the area, and so whenever anyone went to Jerusalem, regardless of where they were coming from, they always said they were going up to Jerusalem uh, or ascending to Jerusalem, hence these songs were called the Songs of Ascent. And our reading today is from the seventh in the cycle of Psalms. And as you just heard, it's, it's a very short psalm, as most of these are, just six verses that we can divide in very neatly into two stanzas of three verses each. In the first three verses, there is this recollection of past deliverance. The psalmist recalls a time when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. This is an idiom found throughout the Old Testament and recalls the prayers for and the promises of restoration. In Jeremiah 29, for example, God promises, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Then I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places that I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Similarly, we hear in Amos 9, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. So again, we hear this idea of God saying, I will restore your fortunes. So the psalmist recalls this return from exile as promised in Jeremiah, in Amos, and elsewhere. In some older translations, this is more explicitly stated as the translation uh, of verse one is, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion. So there is this explicit mention of bringing back the captives from Zion, and so this idea of restoration is a return from exile. And it was just an incredible, incredible thing for them to be returned. It was so unexpected that the whole thing seemed like a dream. And he recalls how they laughed how they were filled and shouted with joy. And of course, it wasn't just this once that God restored the fortunes of his people. God's restoration of his people, God's redemption of his people is the story that is repeated again and again in the scriptures. This psalm, this joyful recollection could just as easily have been written by those of a previous generation. Those, for example, who had spent every day of their lives as slaves for Pharaoh, making bricks, just as their ancestors had done for 400 years. Imagine, that's all you've known, and all of a sudden, one day, you're free. You're walking through the Red Sea. You're eating the manna, and you know that your children are going to be living in the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. It all feels like a dream. How is that possible? It seems too good to be true. 
and even Israel's enemies are so shocked by it that even they have to attribute this reversal of fortune as the work of God. And so everyone agrees that the restoration is and must be a work of God. Then in the second three verses, the psalmist repeats this phrase he used in the first verse, but instead of recollection about the restoration of fortune, he implores God to restore our fortunes now. He's able to boldly petition God for restoration because that is what God has done in the past. And so we can see this confidence in the two images that we are given. The first is that of the streams in the Negev. The Negev is, uh, is a desert in the south part of Israel. And for most of the year, it's just bone dry. But every now and then, there will be these periodic floodings, these periodic rains. And the desert would bloom with wildflowers almost overnight. The psalmist may be feeling dry and thirsty and living under harsh circumstances. But he knows that just as the rains will come, so God will again restore the fortunes of his people. The second image is that of a sower who sows in tears but will return with the joy of harvest. Again, the psalmist knows that the difficulty, the annual hardship of sowing, of planting, of pruning, and so on, but that a time will come and that all of that work will result in the joy of a harvest. And so likewise, he confidently prays in the midst of life's difficulties for God to bring restoration once again. So these two stanzas of the psalm, this entire psalm teaches us that we the people of God, like the psalmist, like the pilgrim, we live between memory and hope. We live between the memory and hope of the restorative work of God of God's work of redemption and deliverance. We're in that space. You have heard often that we live in between the times. The kingdom of God is already here. It has been ushered in by the cross and the resurrection. And at the same time, we are waiting for the fulfillment of the kingdom of God with the return of Jesus when it is fully realized. The already and the not yet. We live in that space, that liminal space. And we live between the memory of what has been and what we know will come again. We are living between the season of Lent and the season of Advent. Between the memory of Easter and the hope of his return. In between, I think, is a pretty good description of where we are and where we often find ourselves. Somewhere between the beginning of restoration and the waiting for the fullness of that restoration. Maybe you've had a leak in your bathroom and you've called in someone to get it fixed. He started the work but it's gonna be a while before you can use your shower again. You're in that space. Maybe you've had a recent surgical procedure. You're glad to be out of the hospital, that the surgery went well, that you're starting to get better. But it's gonna be a while before you're up and running once again. 
Maybe you're between having finished middle school and you're about to start high school. Or you finished high school and you're about to start college. Or maybe you finished college and you're about to start graduate school or your first job. You're anticipating the start of something new, but you're still in that in-between space. It feels like the whole world has been stuck in between these days. Whether it's schools or the grocery stores or the church. We're glad to be back to have in-person services again, but we're still in a hybrid mode and we're still waiting for the day when it can be fully restored, whatever that might look like. This in-betweenness is nothing new, of course. When the people of Israel first returned from their exile, they did not return to the way that things used to be, back to whatever they thought of as being normal. They found out quickly that the land that they had left had been devastated, that the temple was in ruins, that the wall surrounding and protecting the city had been burned and uh, broken, that political squabbles continued to hamper the work of restoration, and that their enemies were still there, mocking, harassing, and threatening their lives. So this prayer psalm is not wishful thinking about some pie-in-the-sky future dream, nor is this some sort of an unhealthy nostalgia about the good old days. This is not like the Beatles song, Yesterday, longing for a yesterday that can never come back when all my troubles were far away. But now my troubles are here to stay. There is no longing for this good old days. Nor is a song like the song that Annie cheerfully sings to grin and bear it because tomorrow, tomorrow, the sun will come out tomorrow. The psalmist is not unrealistically longing for yesteryear, nor is he just trying to stoically suck it up. Someone shared the other day that a colleague at work made the rather discouraging comment that being an adult is just trying to get through another rough week forever. That is not what the psalmist is doing. There's no illusion about the pain, the reality, the dullness, the hardship of living day to day right now. And we all know what this feels like, regardless of faith. You know, and I know what it's like to be in a time of difficulty, of boredom, of anxiety, of exhaustion. Maybe you're just trying to get through another week or another day. The psalmist knows what that's like. But the psalmist is not a romantic who dismisses the pain and the hardships. He knows that even with the miraculous return from exile, life was not easy. He knows that there is suffering in the past, in his present, and in the future. He knows that there is dryness. He knows the difficulty of sowing. But he also knows that that is not the last word. Just as he knows that the rains will come and that the seeds will bear fruit, he knows that God will bring restoration to his people. He prays in hope 
because he knows what God has done before. And what's really striking about this song is that the central quality, the central experience of living between memory and hope is not escapism. It's not optimism. It's joy. Joy characterizes this life between memory and hope. Joy characterizes our living because we know what God has done in the past and we ourselves have experienced what God has done in the past. And this really is the difference. Christian joy, it's not rooted in temperament, having a cheerful attitude or some genetic disposition. It is not rooted in the momentary circumstances of happiness or feelings. It is not rooted in wishful thinking or having a positive mindset. Christian joy is foremost rooted in historical reality. I know it's been difficult to have a lot of joy during this pandemic. If we pause to consider that over 600,000 Americans have died due to COVID, that over 4 million deaths have been reported and probably underreported due to COVID. I mean, that is a staggering, staggering number. And that's not even to mention the many more millions who got sick, continue to be sick, those who lost jobs, those whose businesses had to close, the children who lost a year of learning, those who continue to live in fear, the ongoing divide regarding the situation that we're in. Maybe the friendships that have suffered um, because of our differences in what's been going on. It's, it's hard to have joy in these circumstances. And we, the people of God, we are not immune to discouragement, to illness. And at the same time, and at the same time, the people of God are said to have this foundation of joy. We have this joy not because we are somehow mentally or physically stronger. It's not because we are somehow able to feel better about ourselves than other people. It's not because we are in better health or that we've been able to avoid misfortune. It's not in any way that we are somehow superior to other people. It's that we have heard the good news in Jesus Christ. And joy is the irresistible response to that news. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5, and not only this, but we exult, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character, hope. Tribulation leads to hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
that has been given to us. Our hope does not disappoint because we know what God has already done for us on the cross and that event, that historical moment secures our future. That is the ground of our certainty for our hoping. Our hope is not wishful thinking. It's a reality that we can have certainty about. Our joy, as I've reminded you many times over the years, is different from the way that the world thinks about joy. Because our joy is rooted in what God has done and not in what I feel. Of course, you can experience momentary joy and happiness from buying a new toy or some other material acquisition, entertainment. Those are good, legitimate joys that can be had, whether it's in fellowship, whether it's a good donut. You can have joy. But if that's it, if that's all joy is, then joy just becomes a series of these temporary escapisms. And these escapisms, of course, have diminishing returns. But that is not the joy of faith. The psalmist is not given a magical escape from sowing in tears, from going out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. God does not make our sorrows disappear magically. That is not faith. The tears are there. But somehow, the joy grows out of that sorrow. The sadness somehow is what gives and leads to laughter. Somehow, God is working so that all things together work out for good. Somehow, it's in the seed that falls to the ground and dies through which we see the resurrection and the new life and a harvest of fruit. I know I've said this many, many times, but it bears hearing again and again. The Christian message is one of good news. It is good news. Too many people think that Christianity is just another religion that tells you how to live a more moral or ethical life. Right? Just follow the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount or something like that. But it's not. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not good advice. It is good news. If you want good advice about how to be a better human being, there are a lot of books out there, a lot of philosophies, a lot of systems, a lot of gurus, lots of diets. And if you follow them, if you follow them, and they all promise you'll be you know, thinner and healthier and happier and all that. And some of them, it works. I'm not against self-improvement, so you know, that's not what this is about. But the, the good news of Jesus Christ is something fundamentally different. It's news. It's not advice. It's not a series of rules that you follow to self-actualize or to maximize your potential. The gospel is not a self-improvement regimen. The gospel, the good news, is news. That's it. 
it's news of a historical event and a series of historical events. And the key event is the cross and the resurrection. And the thing about news, maybe the most incredible thing about news, is that the news itself has power to change how you think and how you feel without you doing anything. You know this. Consider all the news you heard this week and how it impacted your mood. For myself, I can tell you just a few things this week. I heard from my dad, for example, the other day that instead of um, eating frozen uh, dinners, uh, which is what he's been doing for a lot of his meals, he actually cooked something using fresh ingredients. Like, I didn't even know he could boil water, but he, he cooked something, right? I mean, that made me just smile and laugh. I had nothing to do with it. I heard from Brian earlier this week that Angelina is making some slow incremental progress and that she's able to respond to some simple commands and has a little bit of more motion in her extremities. That made me glad. I had nothing to do with her medical care. I heard that the COVID numbers are rising again. That just made me mad and sad and discouraged. I heard that the, Mil the Milwaukee Bucks beat the Phoenix Suns last night. I didn't care. <laughs> I have no rooting interest in that news. But if I were living in Milwaukee, I would have been elated. That's the thing about news. You do nothing, and yet it moves you. That's the power of news. And we have the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why the psalmist is recalling what God has done in the past. That's why every Sunday we gather together and I remind you, we remind each other of what God has done, that you are loved, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that there's forgiveness and that nothing shall separate you from the love of God. That's good, good news. You have nothing to fear because not even death will separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. So you can live in the joy of that knowledge, in the joy of that news. Eugene Peterson wrote, joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. Joy is not required for you to be acceptable to God, but it flows out of your abiding in Christ. It's a natural outflow of faith and of discipleship. Phyllis McKinley in her books, Saint Watching writes, I have read that during the process of canonization, the Catholic Church demands proof of joy in the candidate. And although I have not been able to track down chapter and verse, I like the suggestion that dourness is not a sacred attribute. I love that. Dowardness is not a sacred attribute. It's not. The saints knew that. That's why Paul is able to sing while chained up in a prison cell and he's able to write, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. That's why the saints throughout the generations, even though they were persecuted and tortured and even facing imminent death, 
still had a foundation of joy. Paul says joy is a fruit of the spirit. It's not something that you manufacture by yourself, but something that results in you abiding in the vine. As you are filled with the spirit, as you abide in his word and through prayer, this, this joy becomes a part of you. Because that joy is rooted in a historical reality. It's the God-given restoration. You know, how you feel is gonna change moment to moment, depending on the circumstances in your life and all the different kinds of news that you're gonna hear. But that does not change, that never changes the singular pivotal event in history. Nothing can change the ground of your joy because the cross and the resurrection have once and for all secured that joy and has secured your future. In Psalm 42, the psalmist says that his tears have been his food day and night. I mean, he's going through a really, really difficult time of depression. But then he says, these things I remember. These things I remember. He remembers how he used to go to the temple of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. He remembers the joy of worship. He remembers. And that leads him away from despair. We have the same hope. It's not just hoping that something might happen. We have a hope that is certain. Just as the rains will come again, just as the seeds will result in harvest, we have the promise that God will ultimately restore us. Jesus said those who mourn will be comforted. And another psalm reminds us, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. There is sorrow, but there is also joy, certain joy between memory and hope. Believe in the good news of Jesus Christ and may joy fill your heart, even if you are in a season of sowing in tears right now. Please pray with me. Gracious God, <clears throat> It's easy for us to be forgetful, to forget the good news because we have heard it so often that it doesn't stir the joy, the kind of joy that we first experienced the first time we heard it. And yet we know, God, that good news never gets old. It's good to hear the good news again and again. Thank you that our joy is not dependent on our circumstances or momentary moments of happiness, but that it is rooted in what you have done for us in Jesus and in what you continue to do for us and what you have promised us for all of eternity. That beside you, there is joy forevermore. So help us, God, in this season, in between, 
in our moments of doubting, in our moments of exhaustion, in our moments of sowing in tears, to have joy, even as we are reminded of your restoration in the past, and as we look forward to the certain fulfillment of restoration in the future. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.